In the late 1930s, according to Time magazine, something extraordinary happened. A street sweeper named Joseph Figlock, working in Detroit, recovering from the Depression, making ends meet, was sweeping an alley. And a baby, a little baby, fell out of a fourth-floor apartment, breaking its fall by landing on Figlock. Figlock was injured. The baby was fine. Just over a year later, while he was sweeping that same alley, the very same baby, a year older, fell out of the very same window on top of Joseph Figlock, again injuring him, again breaking its fall, and the baby was fine. Salut, c'est John de Glasgow en Écosse, et vous écoutez un épisode spécial des archives d'Akimbo. The thing about coincidences is that we love to talk about them. People don't really want to hear our coincidence, but we feel like we need to discharge what happened to us by telling other people. A couple weeks ago, Alex Peck told me the story of sauerkraut and the Captain James Cook. And I confess that I had not thought of Captain Cook since I was in high school. But it was a great story. I double-checked it on Wikipedia and blogged about it. The very next day, I was surfing around. Someone had told me something about tea tree oil. And I was, well, where's tea tree oil come from? Yes, you guessed it. It comes from the tea tree. The tea tree was named by Captain James Cook. The very next day, I was reading the new book by David Graeber and Marshall Salen, A Deep Dive into Anthropology about Kings. And there on page five or six is a riff about a fundamental principle in the evolution of the way people think about anthropology. And yes, you guessed it, there was James Cook. One more blog coincidence and I'll stop bothering you with them because no one wants to hear about other people's coincidences. In 2005, I wrote an article about my doppelganger, a guy named Robert Newworth who was doing important social justice work in Brazil. Someone had sent me a link to his blog, and on his blog, there was his picture, and he looked a lot like me, a little thinner, but just as bald, and he looked a lot like me, and I was sort of amazed by this. So there in May 2005, I blogged about the fact that it, just about everyone has a doppelganger, and I linked to his site. The next day, I was in Oxford in the United Kingdom at a TED conference, And just before the event started, the, the speaker was going to get on stage. The theater was packed. I was sitting in the middle of the front in the orchestra, about 10 rows back. There weren't any empty seats except for the one right next to me. And just as the lights were dimming, someone sat down next to me. One day after my blog post, someone from Brazil. Yep, my doppelganger, Robert Neuwirth, sat down right next to me the day after I blogged about him. Now, if you're like me and you hear about coincidences that happen to other people, you sort of roll your eyes. So what? There are, after all, no big books of coincidences. No one's spending time and money to watch movies or dramas or soap operas or TV shows or read about other people's coincidences. And yet, when they happen to us, we have trouble letting go of them. Why is that? Let's begin with this. Coincidences are real, and there's no such thing 
as a coincidence. It turns out that when you do the math, rare events are very common. That so many events happen to us in any given day that we can't help it. Some of them are going to be rare. If I put 25 people into a room, there's more than a 50% chance that two of them have the same birthday. What are the odds, people say? Well, actually, when you say, what are the odds, you've pretty much denounced you have no idea what the odds are, because the odds are really good. The reason is this. We don't predict the coincidences in advance. I've written more than 7,000 blog posts, but I only have two decent stories about coincidences associated with them. And never once have I asserted, oh, it would be amazing if exactly one day after I wrote this blog post, this thing occurred. We don't predict the coincidences in advance. If we did, the odds of them happening would be very, very low, and that would be extraordinary. So you hear about people who win the lottery twice, right, with the same number. Well, sure, but we're getting that data by looking at the 50 million people who have played the lottery. Of course, the odds are there that it would be likely that it would happen. When people go down that crazy list of all the similarities between Kennedy and Lincoln, well, yeah, but Kennedy had a million things happen to him, and Lincoln had a million things happen to him. The fact that there are 15 really juicy coincidences between them, it's likely, not unlikely, that we could find those things. So yes, we begin with this. Coincidences are real, but coincidences don't matter. There's no such thing. Why do they matter to us then? They matter to us because we want there to be a story. We want there to be a sketched out path. We want there to be an understanding of how the world works. So consider Pavlov. I don't know if that rings a bell or not. But Pavlov, with the experiment, with the dogs, we've talked about this before. Dogs salivate when they hear the bell because they were trained that way to associate the bell with dinner. That's a story. They turn a coincidence repeated into a pattern. That pattern turns into a story. So it even works on dogs. And the reason we all want it to be true is because we evolved that way. Our culture evolved that way. It's a really good way to stay alive. It's a good way to make sure that you are averting danger or finding food. That what we do is look for patterns as a way of fueling our ability to thrive in a very complicated world. Think about how stressed you get if you're in a place where you can't predict what's going to happen next. Why do they bother teaching people on the airplane how to put on a seatbelt? Is it possible that in 2018 there is a human being capable of getting to the airport who doesn't know how to put on a seatbelt? Of course not. But by telling us that story every single time, they create a sense of control, of predictability. Oh, here we go again just like the little Looney Tunes song that goes on before the cartoon. It establishes a sense of order and meaning. That if you want to stress somebody out, just put them into an environment where things happen without apparent rhyme or reason. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to protect ourselves in an environment like that. 
And so our culture is based on this need for a narrative. And if you want to change the culture, it helps if you can bring that narrative to people who can embrace it. When we think about how lottery tickets get sold and what people are buying when they buy a lottery ticket, we know that what you're paying for is the feeling you get just before you found out you lost. That feeling, worth more than a dollar. If you're buying lottery tickets, that's what you're paying for. It is not a significant long-term investment. It is not a smart way to grow your funds. It is a cheap way to get that feeling. And you get that feeling because you're telling yourself a story. Or if we think about medicine, right? We don't want the doctor to say, yeah, I have no idea if this is going to kill you or not. It kills one out of 2,000 people, one out of 10 people, something. I don't know. We, have, we can do the stats, but basically we're just spinning a big old wheel. That would be hard for us. What we want to hear is the narrative of the steps and the understanding behind the steps so that we feel like we have some element of control. That leads me to the idea of pareidolia, a difficult-to-pronounce-and-spell word that means What do we see when we look into a cloud? In 2004, a Hollywood, Florida woman, Diana Duzer, called the local newspaper and explained to them a story that would become one of the first viral sensations of the Internet. Ten years earlier, she had made a grilled cheese sandwich, as she often did, took a bite out of it, and then when she looked down at it, she saw in the sandwich the face of the Virgin Mary. Shocked, she saved the sandwich, surrounding it with cotton balls, putting it into a glass jar, and leaving it by her nightstand, where, for the next ten years, it sat, protecting her, never once going moldy. Then she listed it on eBay and sold it to a casino in Las Vegas for $28,000. How is it that the Virgin Mary shows up on a piece of grilled cheese? It's our desire to see faces in places where no faces have been painted. Rachel Talbart does photographs of waves, beautiful photographs of oceans in turmoil. And when you look at them, you see ancient Greek and Roman gods. You can't help it. It's what our brain does. Knock, knock, who's there? It finishes off the joke. So what we have to do when we're making decisions is dig deep and say, am I making this decision because there's a pattern match here, because I want to see a narrative, because I'm searching for a sense of control? Or are we making a decision based on what's actually true? Because we will be manipulated by others if we're in the first category. Okay, let's go back to coincidences for a minute, because technology, innovation, really raises the bar. We're busy looking for theories and understanding when we're confronting tech we don't understand. Years ago, I had a song by an obscure artist named Eni Kamosi on my iPhone as the ringtone. I ran into my friend Susan and we're sitting in her office listening to her Sonos on Shuffle. Now, Shuffle was a pretty new idea. And when Shuffle arrived, 
There are all sorts of conspiracy theories based on the coincidences of how we dealt with songs randomly appearing. Maybe Apple was getting paid off, people wondered. How did the machine know to play this song in this moment? It was basically dealing out coincidences all day long. Well, as I was sitting with Susan, her machine on shuffle, going through 4,000 songs, yes, up came Eni Kamozi with his obscure song about the hot stepper. I pulled out my phone, showed Susan my ringtone. Hey, isn't this an amazing coincidence? She reached into her bag, pulled out her phone, and yes, it was her ringtone as well. Simply a coincidence. But if we're not careful, those coincidences get used against us. That's how Bernie Madoff and others easily scam people when it comes to finance. Because we're going to notice the financial coincidences, the wins as they come in, particularly if the scam artist is busy ringing a bell and telling us a story. That the people who have a theory about penny stocks or cryptocurrencies, and they're busy spinning to us the three or four times in a row that it worked, our brains can't help but jump ahead to concoct a theory, to realize that we're on to something, that maybe tech isn't a mystery, maybe we've just figured it out, maybe finance isn't some mysterious puzzle, maybe we've figured it out. And what we need to realize is that while our culture is interpreted by us as a story, it's actually a series of largely random events that we are narrating with pictures of the Virgin Mary, with ringtones, with shuffle, with ship captains, and coincidences at every turn. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Hi, Seth. So, a recurring theme... All, as well in this podcast is uh, about systems. So I've been thinking a lot about what you said about system, how the system benefits itself. So the question is, how do you build a system that benefits the people? What is the right way to build the system, if there's any? You nailed it with this question. Seeing a system as an entity, not just the random result of the actions of individuals, helps us begin to decode how to change systems. Systems that persist are based on the status quo. When the status quo goes away, the system is threatened. And the status quo is the status quo because it's good at fighting off insurgents. It's good at resisting change. But if we're going to change a system, what we can do is look at the drivers of that system the pieces that make it work. Change one of those pieces, make a significant change in that piece, and suddenly the rest of the system has to change or it breaks. So if we look at something like the tipping situation, if one influential restaurateur takes the bold step 
of eliminating tipping in his restaurants, the ecosystem has to respond. So some of the things that happen, some of the highest paid waiters will probably leave because they have to take a pay cut. On the other hand, a different kind of waiter, a waiter who's looking for a different kind of career, will arrive and take that person's place, which could change the entire experience of dining at the restaurant. Not only that, but the people in the back of the house who are now treated significantly better, you'll be able to attract and keep more motivated group of people. But the other thing that happens is a message starts to go to diners. And the message might be, don't go to those other restaurants, because in those other restaurants, you're participating in a system you're not proud of. If that happens, then the owners of those other restaurants have to react to what the first restaurant did, which is adopt that restaurant's policy in order to keep up. People like us do things like this. And so the ripple begins to spread, and a new system takes the place of the old one. This explains some of what Lawrence Lessig is trying to do with campaign finance reform. The thing is that it took, I don't know, a hundred years for it to get really bad. But the math is simple. If you are good at taking money as an elected official, it means you will have more money to spend on ads. If spending more money on ads makes it more likely that you'll get reelected, then you'll get reelected. But then you'll have to even get more money to spend next time because the ratchet goes in that direction, which makes you even more beholden to the people with money. If we look at a small state like Oklahoma, electoral politics there are run by a few dozen really, really rich men because you don't need a lot of money to completely transform the electoral system if you can put unlimited money into the system and money translates into votes. So again, we're seeing a system that's based on inputs that wants to survive and where the outputs can drive even more of the inputs. The way we change a system then is by going to one of the roots, by changing the expectations of people like us do things like this, by organizing groups of people who were previously disorganized. So yes, system theory is super complicated. We'll probably talk about it in a future podcast, but I think that gets us started. Hi, Seth. This is AJ from New York. How do we get more people to be like Sylvia Bloom? I love this question. And like the previous one, I could probably go on for about 45 minutes, but I'll try not to. The thing is that marketing for the last 100 years has been about now, not later. That's why we don't see a lot of hoopla about long-term savings and tons of hoopla about having a big wedding now instead of later. So the thing about Sylvia Bloom is that she was all about later. She waited 60 or 70 years before that money ended up going to charity. But the story she told herself about what was going to happen when she died, that sustained her. But that's not easy to market in this century because we're all focused about now. So there are two things that nonprofits can do. The first one is focusing on what do you get today. This is the crazy thing about tote bags. This is what happens at 
the charity auction, when someone comes up to you and says, don't bid on this one, I'm going to bid on it and I want to get a really good deal. That's not in the spirit of charity, right? The idea of giving to charity is not that you're going to get a discount on a vacation home you bought at a charity auction. The idea is that you're not giving to charity so you get a tote bag with your money. No, the idea of charity has always been something a bit more selfless than that. But modern marketing pushes us to use status and to use tension to create a a feeling of now so that someone with money will do it today. The longer-term approach is to figure out how to celebrate the Sylvia Blooms. People like us do things like this. People in our community tithe. People like us are quietly making long-term donations. But of course, if it's quiet, people don't know about it. So one of the things that's going to have to shift is we're going to have to make a bigger deal out of the Sylvia Bloom approach. Because if enough people hear about it and talk about it and aspire to it, then it becomes part of the culture. And becoming part of the culture is the goal of every marketer. Thanks for listening. As always, we love your questions. Visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. If you like Akimbo, please share it with a few friends. We'll see you next time. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned It's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.